Thank you, Father, for the marvelous opportunity to affirm what Scripture from beginning to end affirms for us, that no matter what happens to us, uh, you will hold us fast. God, what a, a great love you showed in Jesus Christ that as we begin uh, chronologically a, a new year, that we can have that sound, solid affirmation that we cry out, you will hold me fast. So thank you, Father, and we have worshipped you. We have done so through the reading of the Word, the singing of the Word, and now as we not only read but proclaim your Word, we pray that we will respond as well. I need to hear this and respond. All of us do. We are here today. And so I thank you for the opportunity to open your Word to your people, and I pray that we would, we would zero in on everything. Chances are we won't remember much of what is said, but by the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that just the right thing would sink into our hearts. You would hammer it home to make a, a, a possible a transformation of our lives that we might become more like Jesus in every sphere of our lives. So thank you, Lord, for the incredible privilege of sharing again with your people. Attend your word now, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. On my computer, whenever I open a search, it comes up with a Microsoft search, kind of built in. And if you know anything about that, it always pops up with current news stories. It's really difficult for, for me personally, because of the slant of those stories, I can only get usually one or two boxes down, and then I stop. I've got to get back to the search. You understand what I mean, don't you? And uh, last week, uh, I was doing a search, and something interesting caught my eye. Now, I only made it through several, but I'm assuming some things through what I looked through. It was, and you could imagine this, at the end of the year, celebrities that we lost in 2020. So I just wrote down a few. I didn't even realize they had died. But, but they really were. Now, some of these you will get depending on your age. Some of these you won't. Well, I noticed that Eddie Van Halen, died. Arguably, Carol, do you know who Eddie Van Halen is? Okay. Well, you'll get a chance on some others. Arguably, one of the greatest guitar players ever to live. Okay? Whitey Ford died. Arguably, one of the best pitchers ever to live. Sean Connery died. The best James Bond that's, that's not arguable. Okay. Kobe Bryant died, arguably one of the best basketball players ever to play the game. Chadwick Boseman died, arguably one of the best actors up and coming. Died young. And this wasn't in the list, but Minkai last April, died. How many of you know who Min, Min Kai is? Jim, I know you know. 1956, my guess is that uh, soon if Jim has an opportunity to preach, you'll mention the anniversary, 65th anniversary of five missionaries who were speared and shot with arrows and died on the shores of a beachhead that they had opened up to share the gospel with the Alca Indians in, in a remote part of Ecuador. And I read an article. I, I just I thought about it. Uh, again, they, he wasn't in the list of celebrities. 
but he's a man who left a legacy. Read an article, it, it would do your heart well to read it, uh, by Randy Alcorn on the passing of Minkai. And in that article, he showed a picture, and I thought, what amazing grace. There was a picture in there of Minkai, and there were several others that were lined up with him in that picture. Bert Elliott, the brother, the older brother of Jim Elliott, who was killed, in fact, holding a picture of Jim. Steve Saint and Steve McCauley, the sons of two men who were speared to death by this man named Minkai. Minkai heard the gospel because faithful people continued to go, and he received the gospel, was thoroughly transformed, became an elder in the church that blossomed there in that stone-aged village, came to America, and the story of redemption, the legacy of salvation, is going to go on and on and on because of the faithfulness of missionaries and because of the faithfulness of God to save by the power of His Word and by the power of His Spirit. The thing that I was struck with when I saw that picture is here are two men now, grown men, standing beside the man that they call grandfather now who killed their dads and is now a Christian. Is that fair? I've said this almost every time that I've done the four sermons through the book of Ruth. The road to redemption and to glory is not a straight line. And there are a lot of Christians who stumble over things like what I just mentioned because their idea, and I, and I don't want to just condemn Western culture, but it seems to me that especially in Western culture with the rise in what is loosely referred to as the prosperity so-called gospel, the teaching is that when you become a Christian, then everything is okay. It's your best life now. But the reality is that God uses sometimes tough circumstances and sinful circumstances, and He uses the most unusual and unlikely of people in His redemptive plan. Now, let me say that and make it personal or ask you to make it personal for yourself. The road to my redemption, I'm a believer in Christ, but the working out in what we call sanctification, the working out of that before and after is not a straight line. And the road to redemption is not filled with perfect people. It's filled with twists and turns and dead ends and as a friend of mine says, fits and starts, shattered dreams, pain, what we would consider on this earth, tragedy. And so, I, I didn't even realize all that I was getting into when I started in Ruth. I just did it as kind of an Advent sermon series to follow up what Jim had started in the first two sermons of Advent, and I, I, I started teaching it, and I realize that there is just so much there. It's refreshing to me because it's so uncomfortable and packed with the redemption and the legacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's real like your life is real. So let's go back and just review, and we'll get into this chapter. I'll read some as we walk through the outline that you have there in front of you. But uh, the first chapter of the book begins with darkness. Let me just walk you through some of the things. You, you, you remember this. If you don't, go back and listen to the sermon. But there was a famine and probably a loss of work. It was an agricultural economy, and so Elimelech probably lost his job, lost his livelihood. It forced him and his family, his wife, 
Naomi, their two boys, to move to a foreign land. Now, get, get a picture of this. They've lived in Bethlehem. Had to be a great town to live in. Small, everybody knew everybody, and they were forced to leave what they knew and end up in a foreign land. And lo and behold, if that weren't enough, then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, dies. He's the... He's the father. He's the head of the household. He's the protector. He's the provider. Well, Malon and Kilion, the two boys, did what they could do. I'm not sure how well advised their decision was, but they married two Moabite women. And then for 10 years, they did not have children. Now, I, I don't know. I'm reading into this, but I think it's a pretty fair thing to say that they were barren. I don't know all the reasons, but that's what the Scriptures say. And then, to add to that, just imagine that this is your life. Some of you have been through a lot. But to heap it on, both sons die, and for Naomi it results in sorrow and bitterness. Now, this is real. And to one degree or another, it is a picture of everyone in this room in your life. And that's why it's refreshing. It's not sanitized like sometimes we do with our Facebook posts or our Christmas cards. Now, I'm not against Christmas cards where everybody is smiling, but do you know the most uh, endearing, as uh, is I talk to people, the most endearing pictures that sometimes are sent out on Christmas cards? It's the one where everybody is acting goofy. And that seems to garner the most attention because that, in some ways, shows the reality. But if you think about it, that's exactly the kind of world that the Lord Jesus Christ came into. Zechariah prophesied that He, the Messiah, would give light to those who sit in darkness. So the Advent begins with darkness and it ends in light. And then as we journeyed through chapters 2 and 3, we discovered that in the midst of the darkness of our lives, that some, hopefully all, all of us, have turned to faith in God. We trust His providence in the midst of our circumstances, which may not be the best, and we choose to do the right thing. Now, last week I talked about this, and, and, and I'm, I'm probably at some point going to write down, I did a study and, and I wrote down the things that I observed, all of the positive characteristics of Ruth and all of the positive characteristics of Boaz. And you know what I want to do with that? I want to somehow get it into your hands. I don't know what you'll do with it, but I would encourage every woman and particularly every young woman to look at the qualities, the characteristics of Ruth and with the help of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, you seek to emulate those qualities. And then to those young women too, you look at the qualities of the guy named Boaz and you look for a Boaz. That's what I talked about not only last week but the week before. Guys, same thing. Seek to be a Boaz. Look for the qualities in a partner and in friends of a Ruth. Today we come to the end of the story and we discover that all along we have seen God work in this, that we are now part of a plan that was bigger than we individually were, a plan that looks back to how God has been guiding people and circumstances, even the most horrific, to bring about His plan to redeem the world. So, once again, I'm going to say it, the path of the redeemed is not a straight line. But I want to give this additional encouragement. Christian, we will get there. Here's something else that I said the last couple of weeks. Don't judge your life right now until you get to the final chapter. Someone might say, Pastor, I, I hear you say that, 
And, and we've got to be careful, really. Sometimes with teaching people like Ruth and Boaz, we, we enter into a little bit of what might be called triumphalism. And, and we look at characters like that, and sometimes people, you're, you're sitting there and you're listening to a pastor, and he's talking about do this and do that, be like Boaz, be like Ruth, look for a Ruth, look for a Boaz. And deep down inside, there are people who are saying, Pastor, I hear what you're saying, but I'm, I, I'm too far gone. Even young people sometimes will say, I've sinned too badly. I don't know that there really is any hope for me. Well, let me just tell you something. The fact that you're here for one reason or another proves that that's not true. Let me show you another thing. This is from the life of arguably the greatest man after the Lord Jesus Christ to impact the church. And look what he said about his past. Not much of a legacy here. Formerly, I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy. So you, nobody in this room is too far gone. Amen. And then perhaps one of the greatest stories, the greatest legacies that was ever left will answer some people it, and I've talked to people like this who are advanced in years, and they really begin to understand. Things begin to cl click for them about growing in sanctification, and sometimes they'll look back with regret to the life that they have in their minds wasted, and they'll say, but pastor, you don't understand. I'm too old to leave a legacy. That, that, th those are real thoughts. But, but one of the greatest stories of redemption and legacy is found in the story of the man who hung next to the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. I just want to ask you a question. How much longer did he have to do a lot of works for Jesus? And yet his legacy of simply believing has been something that for 2,000 years, whenever people read the Gospels, that they read his legacy that he has left. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And shortly after that, he was with him in paradise. You talk about a legacy. So with that as a review and an introduction, let's look at three vital lessons. You see them there um, in your, your worship guide. And we're going to read all three passages of Scripture in chapter 4, starting with verse 1. Uh, the title of this, and I want you to watch because the next title is very, very close, but it's just, it's turning the words around. I want us to look first of all at gaining your life, but losing your eternal legacy. Gaining your life, but losing your eternal legacy. Now, Boaz, this is chapter 4, verse 1. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer. Now, we have to backtrack a little bit. If you'll remember, Boaz had had an encounter with Ruth. He agreed to marry her. But being the man of integrity that he, that he was, he admitted to the fact that there was a kinsman Redeemer closer than he was, and he got first choice. And he says, I'll take care of this. And we'll come back and talk about that in just a minute. Boaz, who had gone to the gate and sat down there, behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, the ESV says this, turn aside, friend. Literally, turn aside such a one. Or brother is probably the better translation. Sit down here. And the man who is unnamed, turned aside and sat down. And then Boaz took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, the unnamed man, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative. That too is more accurately translated as brother, our brother Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, 
Buy it in the presence of these sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me that I may know, for there is one besides you who will redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, this is the unnamed redeemer that's closer, I will redeem it. Now, at this point, if you'll remember and you've been here, this is a love story. And it doesn't say it in as many words, but I I believe at this point that Boaz loved Ruth deeply. I said to you a couple of weeks ago, it wasn't necessarily because she was a beautiful woman. It was because he saw the character qualities. So at this point, if you're reading the story, if you read the whole thing and you're reading it like for what it really is, a love story that points to another love story, then your heart is going to sink. What? You ever do that sometimes when you watch a movie and the, the, the couple that you hope gets married and then all of a sudden something happens and somebody else gets in the way? You say, well, what is this? I wanted them to get married. Verse 5, then Boaz said, the day you buy the field, he kept this, used it in a secondary sense, from the hand of Naomi, you will also require, uh, acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead. Now, this is key, and I'm going to do my best to explain this to you, because these customs that they did sound to us weird. They're very strange, but they tell a story about how important legacy is to God. Not that we're to do everything that they did, because these have pretty much passed away. But look at why he says he will acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, meaning that he would marry Ruth. Ruth would have, hopefully, a baby boy who would continue not his own line. Now, this is important. Are you following me? Not his own line, not his own ancestry. I'm talking about the unnamed kinsman redeemer but actually might detract from it. His thinking was, well, if I marry her and then we have a baby, that baby gets everything I have. What if I have another kid? I will lose the legacy and I will lose my inheritance and I will lose my name. It all goes to Elimelech and Malan. That's what that means. And many times, my guess is, just like I have done, you read over that and you don't really have a cultural context. That's what it means. So what did he do? This is so important. Then the Redeemer said, whoa, wait a minute. I can't redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. That's what he was talking about. Take my right of redemption yourself for I cannot. Uh, Give me another word that is more accurate for cannot. Will not. Remember last week, the three qualities of a redeemer had to be a close relative. He got that one. Had to have the ability to redeem. He got that one too. But the third one, willing to redeem. And he missed it there. Verse 7, now this was the custom. We're moving on. All right, we're there in the transactional process. He said no. Now, watch this because it is very important Again, culturally to understand what is happening. It sounds weird, but hang on. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer, the unnamed Redeemer, said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he, the unnamed Redeemer, took off his sandal. Okay, have I thoroughly lost you or are you tracking? With the custom. It's so foreign that you, you might get lost in all of this, but it was, the sandal was like having a deed to his land. He, he said, okay, my right of redemption is, is rescinded, and so I'm giving you the right. Now, let's stop here and talk about this for just a minute. Gaining your life and losing an eternal legacy. By the way, in case you don't see this, you don't think it's obvious, 
You don't want to do this. Who was the unnamed Redeemer? Well, again, Scripture only tells us he was a closer relative to Elimelech that was Naomi's husband who had died. He was a closer relative than was Boaz. Again, in the picture that I'm seeing portrayed, Elimelech, it's very possible he could have had two younger brothers, the unnamed man and then Boaz. Now, let me just ask you something from what I just read about the unnamed man. Please think with me. Really, do you see anything malicious in his words? Come on now, interactive. You don't have to say it, but just think it. Do you see anything hateful or malicious in his, in his words or actions? What do you see? You see selfishness. He looked at the situation and he said, at first he was willing to redeem before Ruth came into the picture. So basically he's sitting there thinking, how can I work this to my advantage? It's a picture of the fact that he was really only concerned about his fortune and his fame. He wanted his name to perpetuate. He wanted his money to perpetuate. And he saw in that a threat to the continuation of his fame and fortune. Now listen to me carefully. And this is where I begin to apply this. I don't care how old or young you are. Many times when faced with a decision of doing the right thing. Wasn't that what the sermon was about last time? When faced with the decision of doing something that is the right thing or doing something because it's expedient, because it seems to work for my advantage, it's the shortcut. It's what can I do to benefit me. All of those kinds of things, that's exactly what he was doing. He was willing to do what was expedient, for himself instead of what was necessary in fulfilling what God had told him to do. Let me stop here. Does that make sense? That's why just a, a, an overview of this, you're, you're, I did. I, I've read Ruth for years and I never really saw this. This is a picture of me. How many times have I done something because it's the easy way rather than the right way? And I'm not talking about big sin. I'm just talking about those little decisions every day with attitude, with word, with action that just kind of chip away at your integrity and you lose a legacy. I said it a minute ago. We heard about it. God is all about leaving a legacy. And again, this is shocking to us particularly those who say, I've gone too far, I've sinned too deeply. We need to remember the Apostle Paul. I'm too old, no time left, the thief on the cross. Let, let me show you now in the whole thing with the shoe. Did you guys get that, taking off the sandal? I mentioned this last week, but I didn't show the actual Scripture. So we're going to look at the Scripture in three different slides that talks about this. Now, this is, this is incredible, and we see things that were done and were not done. Here was the law according to Deuteronomy when a kinsman redeemer refused to do his responsibility. So, let me start here. If the man, who's the man? It's the same thing as the unnamed man in Ruth. Does not wish to take his brother's wife and raise up, remember, parenthetically, raise up a legacy for the dead man's his name and his fortune. But if he refuses to do that, then the brother's wife. Now, Malan's wife, Ruth, was not there. It was Boaz who was taking the responsibility to do this. 
But this is what would, would have happened. If Ruth had been a part of it, then this is what she should have done. She'll go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Okay, again, I'm going to stop. Are you tracking with this? Let's look on to what she will do. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. If he persists saying, I don't wish to take her, then his brother's wife, that would have been Ruth, shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull off his sandal, off his foot. He, he didn't take it off. She pulled it off and spit in his face. Can you believe that's in the Bible? You're talking to your friend you're wanting to share your faith with or disciple. Well, let's start in Deuteronomy 25. Let's talk about taking off sandals and spitting in someone's face. This was all a picture. It was a picture of what was happening to this man. We don't see, do we? that Boaz spit in his face. I think he was so protective of Ruth that he didn't want her character to be sullied in the least. And she shall answer and say, she didn't have to and neither did Boaz. So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. In the name of his house shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Did that unnamed kinsman redeemer leave a legacy? Be careful with your answer. Most of the time we say no. And that's where we think that as Christians even, and, and even those who are non-Christians can kick into neutral. I just won't leave a legacy, people say. No, you do leave a legacy. Look at the quote by James Moffat. Death is never the last word in the life of a man. When a man leaves this world, be he righteous or unrighteous, he leaves something in the world. He may leave something that will grow and spread like a cancer or a poison. Or he may leave something like the fragrance of perfume or a blossom of beauty that permeates the atmosphere with blessing. This guy never shows up again. He was, like a lot of decisions we, we make, he was all about perpetuating his fortune and fame. And really, in the long run, he got neither. The only time we hear about this man is in this story. How sad it will be. When people get into eternity, you, you do know that it's appointed once for a man to die. Woman, women too, okay? After that, what comes? The judgment. So is that for everybody in this room? Yep, everybody in the world. The only difference is some will be standing before the judge without a mediator. For those of us who know him, we will be standing before the judge with a mediator, mediator, and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's the principle that Jesus carries forth in the New Testament. Luke 17, Matthew 10, Matthew 16. This is important, and he said it over and over again in different ways. Whoever, and this is talking about the ultimate, the eternal salvation. Whoever seeks to preserve his life only thinking about himself and what, what, what can I get out of this for me? You're going to lose it. And, and that's a principle for even those of us who have, have believed in Jesus Christ. Not that we will lose our salvation, but we could end up losing a legacy. In other words, whenever you do that, like the unnamed kinsman redeemer, it's a bad bargain. Well, 
Rather than miss out on spiritual opportunities, let's go to the next thing. Verses 9 through 12, losing your life and gaining an eternal legacy. So starting with verse 9, then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Chilion and to Malon, and also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife. Don't get hung up on that. Remember, they had different customs. Now watch. Why? Exactly the opposite of what the other guy wanted to do, to perpetuate. He said, I really am not looking at my name and my fortune. What I want to do is do the right thing and obey the Lord to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all of the people watch their response. This, this was incredible. Basically, Boaz was willing to give everything. Oh, by the way, he gained everything. Then all the people, verse 11, who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. Do you see the blessing they're speaking on him? May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be known in Bethlehem. Those are one and the same, by the way. Now, watch this. We're going to come back to this in the last point. And may your house be like the house of Perez. Let me just stop and say this that I'll come to. Perez did not have a good start. They're referring back to him. The legacy whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. I've said this before. Boaz was a man of integrity. He was selfless. And as far as he was concerned, his son with Ruth now watch this, would be in the line of Elimelech and Malon. He was going to do that. And legally, Obed, who would be born, we'll see that in just a few moments, legally was the son of Malon and the grandson of Elimelech. Did Boaz lose out? All you have to do is read the lineage here in Matthew and in Luke. You're going to find God did, he did something marvelous with that selfless act. Not only, let me just mention this, not only would Obed, the son to be born to Ruth and Naomi, by the way she was barren for 10 years, God opened her womb. So not only would Obed be of the legal descendants of Elimelech and Malon, he would also be the legal and the biological descendant of Boaz, of Perez, and of Judah, through whom would come the greatest king that Israel would know in David and the greatest king, the king of kings, who would come much, much later, the Lord Jesus Christ. Losing your life for the things that really matter, for the cause of Christ, God says He will keep it. You will keep it. And that's exactly what happened to Boaz. Let me just give a personal illustration. And I, gosh, I always want to be appropriate with these. I mentioned it, by way of an illustration, my wife Chan last week. And uh, so many positive qualities in this woman. But let me just tell you, and, and I, I thought about this, and I, w- I want everybody here, but particularly you young people. She's not perfect, no, no more than Ruth is perfect, okay? But this speaks of how decisions that we make 
can have good, good results and the circumstances can be lifelong. Jan heard the gospel in the eighth grade. She went to church all her life in a nominal Christian church that really talked about doing good things and never, never really talked about the gospel. And so in, in the eighth grade, she heard the gospel when her parents became Christians. And that worked on her. The Holy Spirit worked on her. And I think it would be safe to say, can I say this, honey? Between the eighth grade and the tenth grade, there were some struggles. Yeah. She was kind of a wild child. And, you know, I, I, I wonder if her parents sometimes looked at her and said, we might as well give up. Ninth grader on into the tenth grade. Boy, she never heard what we said. In the tenth grade, she went to a Young Life ski camp and heard the gospel again. It's amazing how when the gospel is preached to you, you don't have the Holy Spirit operating. Well, the Holy Spirit was operating. Boom. She got saved under a hairdryer. I'm serious. That's where she was when she cried out to God and said, God, I, I need your help. She was dating a guy that was not a Christian. Okay, fast forward. The next year, 11th grade, she goes, and this is how God weaves these things together. She went to a seminar, a week-long seminar. I can imagine many of our students doing something like that. The average student, no. A week-long seminar every night for three hours plus, Friday all day, Saturday all day. Led by a guy named Bill Gothard, who's fallen on disfavor. But in that seminar, no matter what you agree with or don't agree with, she heard what God said about not being unequally yoked. She did something about it. You know, sometimes um, you, you've got to do the best thing and just get away. And so that's why she left Dallas, Texas, didn't go to a Texas school. She came to God's country, the University of Arkansas. Now, this is, the, the, I'm not making this up. This is her testimony. When she got there, she decided in terms of her dating life that she would date pretty much indiscriminately. Hmm. Is that a good way to pick a partner? To be unequally yoked with? I, I really don't think so, but that's what she did. And by the end of that first year, her, her freshman year, she decided uh, that that's not working. So I'm just going to date Christians. Oh my. And she did for that next year, sophomore year. But here's what she found not everybody who, not every guy, not every girl, but every guy in her case who says they're a Christian acts like a Christian. And so she said by the end of her sophomore year, she said, Lord, I'm going to give my dating life to you. And she says, he took it. In her junior year, she, didn't, she, didn't, she just didn't date. She was looking for a spirit-filled guy and one who would be her spiritual leader. So along comes, some of you saw on Facebook, this long-haired guy named Marty Brown just turned his life around. Or he didn't turn it around. God did. And I met her at church. I, I think that's the best place to meet a spouse. Met her at church, asked her out for three dates on the same weekend, a revival on Friday night, no kidding. And a date to a movie. We saw the classic, How the West Was Won. Okay, great stuff. And then took her to church on Sunday. I don't know, maybe not a very promising start. But she said, and I was talking to her about this morning, and I'd forgotten. She said, when I got into your little Volkswagen, and the first thing you said was, can we pray before our date? 
She thought there's hope. So here it is, 48 and a half years later, 47 years. All I'm trying to say to her, and not not puffing up, we've done a lot of things that we have made poor choices in. Please trust me in that. But hopefully that, that choice, that good choice, has left and will leave a legacy far after we are gone. Jim Elliott, one of the guys speared, and you've heard this over and over, he said it like this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And that's the last part, the beautiful legacy of redemption. Now, let's just read through this. I'll make a couple of comments about God's marvelous providence, and we'll get out of here, hopefully with a new outlook on what God is doing in your past and in your future. So Boaz, this is verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, and he went to her, and the Lord gave her conception. The Lord gave her conception. That's beautiful. She bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, because it's her line, it's Elimelech's wife, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. Who's that redeemer? We're going to find out. Boaz was the redeemer, but there's another one. And may his name be renowned in Israel. May he be to you a restorer of life and a nurturer of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him, Obed. Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and she became his nurse, and the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And about 3,700 years later, the Messiah would come along. Last part. And and again, Perez is named. This is interesting. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. And if you go again into the lineage of Luke chapter 2, Matthew chapter 1, you'll find that generations later, a man named Jesus was born. Okay, just something I want to be an encouragement to you from this book. God's sovereignty and what he has done and what he is doing. Did God, let me just go back. I'm going to ask a couple of questions. Did God have a hand in the birth of Jesus? Did God ordain every detail? Talking about Mary and Joseph. Yeah, 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 the answer is yes. How about in the life of David? Jesse? Obed, Perez. Wait, wait, wait. Do you know the story of Perez? Um, It is PG-13. One of the fascinating things, if you're reading through the book of Genesis, here's this marvelous story of God working through Joseph, and all of a sudden, Moses, inspired by God, puts Genesis 38 in there. What in the world? And it, listen... It is the the most awful thing. Are you saying God was at work in that? Let me give you a statement. You may want to write this down. It's an easy but not, well, it's simple but not easy. Understanding the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man never is easy. But it is simple. God has his hand in the action where there is sin. If he doesn't, then Perez was a mistake, which means that Boaz was a mistake, which means that if you follow the, the line down, 
that everybody who came after him was a mistake, which means that I'm a mistake because I was conceived out of wedlock. Humanly speaking, I'm an accident. Random choice. 17-year-old's worst nightmare. God has, and I want you to personalize this, if you have ever gone through this or you have something in your past, God always has a hand in the action where sin is. Look at the crucifixion of Christ. But He never has a hand in the sin of the action. I would, because the Bible never says that God is the author of sin. He just ordains, controls, and when we act with Him and cooperate with Him, then we can ask the question, did God have a hand in the action of your birth? Wait a minute. And not, I'm, I'm in the minority, I know that even if there was sin involved? Did God have a hand in the action of your birth? Absolutely. Jeremiah said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. If you can look back and see the work of God, does that give you hope for looking down the road? You say, I haven't done that much. Trust God. Remember, the thief on the cross, what's the one thing that he did? Believe in Jesus as the Messiah. That's a good start. And so today, I want to encourage you, if you've never done that, and the Lord is stirring your heart, it's always the Lord who initiates those things, then just trust in Him. Lord, remember me. And start a great legacy. Father, I thank you for your word. Now, these are kind of complicated things that we've been talking about because they're, they're outside uh, the, 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 the normal understanding that we have about how things work, just not a part of our culture. And yet I pray that as we've worked through these, there's been an understanding of how you have been working all along, not just in the life of an ordinary couple that lived thousands of years ago, but that you're a God who's working in our life right now. Help us commit to trust you and to leave a legacy of faith for generations to come. Thank you, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.